Welcome to Career Corner, where it's my belief that you are the CEO of your career. In episode number three, I chat with my friend Jenny Picansis. Jenny has worked in modeling and fashion, technology, and media in a variety of capacities. In this conversation, we cover a lot of ground, including handling conflict at work, leadership, the unintended benefits of networking and mentorship, diversity, equity, and inclusion, her thought process on getting an MBA, the importance of trying new things, and much, much more. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Jenny. Thanks for listening. Jenny Lacances, welcome to Career Corner. It's great to have you. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me, John. Of course. So, Jenny, we can get into later about how we know each other, but we're, we're having this conversation on October 19th, 2020, so we're still in the throes of COVID. How has the move been? Like, what's going, been going on for you and your family during COVID? And then, may I'd like to take a big step back and learn more about your childhood and how you grew up. Sure. So, um, it's interesting um, to having moved from New York City to New Jersey amidst everything that's happening around COVID. Um, specifically because I am such an avid New Yorker. I've been a New Yorker for over 20 years and just love the city, the energy and everything. So leaving New York City to go um, live in Jersey, it's been interesting. And then you have on top of all of that, the whole COVID thing. So it's been very interesting trying to meet my neighbors who um, are masked and find the new shops to shop at and local restaurants and bars that are not open. So it's been it's been a challenging time, um, but we, we are loving the new life and the suburban life and, and the culture in um, Cliffside Park where we are now. 20 years you've been playing with house money for a long time, so you did it longer than most. <laughs> right, right. I, I, where, where did you grow up? How was your childhood? So I grew up in the west suburbs of Chicago two-family home, very suburban kind of life. I know Chicago's a lot different nowadays. Um, and then just decided I was going to model professionally and go to college in New York City. So that kind of what drove me to New York. Um, and I really, really enjoyed it, um, having worked in the fashion industry from some for some time and then working in um, the tech sector and now advertising. So it's been a really interesting journey um, from a little Midwest girl in Chicago to a big New Yorker in the Big Apple. When when did you know you wanted to be a professional model? And I, I assume is is that what led you to to the big city? Um, sort of. Um, so I and my first marriage, um, um, my first husband um, was stationed in Troy, New York. Um, and I was already doing a little bit of modeling, but nothing big. And so when he was in Troy, New York, was really boring there. I mean, it just wasn't the right fit for us culturally. We, we drove down to New York City all the time. And so I thought it was a great opportunity for me to kind of get out of the boredom of um, Troy, New York, and move into New York City. And then there was an opportunity for me to finish my college education and also kind of pursue more long-term goals around modeling. So yeah, it was a combination of a, a lot of things, but primarily I just hated living in upstate New York at the time. I won't be offended as the guy who grew up in upstate New York. 
Right. So, so I can I can relate to to some of that. I didn't grow up far from Troy, but I I totally get coming from Chicago. It's probably not as exciting. So, what were you interested in growing up as a kid? Did you have any early jobs, or you know, what subjects did you like in high school? How did you start to know what I wanted or, to do? If, if um, you knew it all. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I um, initially, I thought in college, I went to a college um, at uh, City College of New York, and and I took classes at NYU and Baruch as well. And I thought, I want to be a broadcast journalist. I want to tell stories through journalism. I want to be kind of the host of my own show one day. And that was kind of the dream. Um, but really quickly, reality struck in, and I found that um, having to to move somewhere to kind of get my chops um, and my expertise and build that, I didn't want to do that. So I didn't think it was the right thing for me. And then um, an opportunity for me to work at Yahoo presented itself, and I worked there um, in tech for Yahoo for many years and really, really enjoyed I'm kind of learning that. And then that allowed me to transition into a role into advertising. So initially, I really thought I was going to do something around journalism, um, either a written journalist or a broadcast journalist, which I'm still very much interested in. Um, I had a few articles published and um, had some poetry published in books before. Um, so I'm still really interested in that and hopefully we'll be able to publish something um, more um, mainstream one day. But um, yeah, I, I just kind of advertising and fashion kind of fell into my lap and that's kind of what I'm prone to now. Got it. So you, you, you moved to Troy, New York from Chicago and then and then you go to the city at what age did you start modeling and and was this sort of something you did off and on throughout your career as you're doing these other other jobs yeah so I modeled for approximately um from the ages of 16 to about 22 and I did mainly commercial print not a lot of high fashion because I'm 5'4 which is really really short for the for the modeling industry, but I, I did like transfers. Um, I modeled for some Sean John, Lester's hair products, things of that nature. Um, and re- I really enjoyed it. Um, it kind of fell into my lap because um, my son at the time, I was having him audition for a Gap commercial. Um, and they, the people there really loved me and thought I had a great look. And so they brought me in to do um, some test runs or some other things that they were working on. So that's kind of how I got my taste for it. Um, just kind of utilizing my son and to, to make some extra, extra dough. But eventually um, I thought, oh man, this is great. It was a nice little side hustle, easy money for me at the time. And so um, I just continued to do it um, and, and did, it, did a lot more of it when I moved into New York City. What did you study in college, Jenny? So I studied, I have a degree in advertising and one in journalism. So I studied broadcast journalism as my major, Got it. Um, but my, but primarily just communications around advertising. So um, that was my main focus um, in city college journalism and um, advertising have a lot of courses that overlap. So I was able to easily get a second degree by taking, I think, maybe 10 additional classes. Um, and so that's how I, I'm a double major. Got it. So you were really serious about doing the broadcast thing. And oh, yeah. I thought I was going to be a broadcast journalist. 
I tell my son that all the time. I was like, I could have been the woman on the news that you see every day. Yeah. <laughs> on, sport, the, on Sports Center. Right. <laughs> right. It's, it's never too late. What what was your first non was Swatch Group your first non modeling gig or was there something before that? Was um, that sort first, of your first like post college? Yeah. That was so my first job out of college, I worked for this company in Carteret Craven Elect called Carteret Craven Electric Cooperative. Um, I was a customer service representative. Um, and this is in um, North Carolina, Havelock, North Carolina. It's a military base out there. Um, um, my first husband was stationed there for a while. I think that that was my first job. Um, and yeah, I was a customer service representative there. And I really loved that company. It was a in the South and, you know, the Southern hospitality. Um, I think that that's kind of why when I first moved to New York, I drew I was so drawn to a lot of um, friends that were from the South um, because I had lived there for four or five years and I worked at that company and I built family around that company. Um, and I'm still friends with a lot of the folks that um, I used to work with, even the CEO um, at that company still kind of pings me every now on social media to check in and see how I'm doing. So um, that was my first job out of um well, during college, um, I worked for there. And then I transitioned into fashion when I moved to New York, working in the modeling industry. Um, when I wasn't getting modeling gigs, I did temp work to essentially pay the bills. And at temp work, they used to send me to fashion companies to do receptionist type works and things of that nature. So I worked for Swatch um, as a receptionist for, I want to say, about a year or so. Um, eventually, um, the leadership there really liked the work I was doing, and they gave me an opportunity to go on a full role into like a junior associate role where I did um, sales and visual merchandising for Calvin Klein. So I ended up doing that for several years where, of course, I met your wife, um, yes. John. Um, and so we just we just became really good friends during that time. But yeah, and I just got promoted from an administrative assistant to essentially visual and sales merchandiser for Calvin Klein. So I did that for about, I want to say, three and a half, four years. So a couple questions based on what you said. The the temp gig, you know, I don't. I don't hear a lot these days about college graduates being eager to do temp work. Is there sort of an element there of like you were, you were really into the modeling thing and you did what you had to take? Like, how did you feel about that when you were doing temp work? Was it all in the spirit of I want to really give this modeling thing a push or I have to pay, you know, I have to pay the bills kind of thing? Because I just like I also worked as a contractor at Pfizer. And oh, at that wow. time, I, I, I yeah, I, I wasn't a full time employee and I didn't. But it got me down to the city. It's like what got me, you know, and I did all the right things. I did the internships and good GPA. I didn't go to the biggest school, but that's what got me down there. And my approach was, let me just get my foot in the door and then I can move around a little bit. It seems like that's what happened to you in this case. It's happened from, you know, I don't hear a lot about that. It's almost like I want this job right away. And I won't lower my standards for that. Do you have, do you have a thought on that philosophy or not? Having, having a son 
um, well, he he's not a millennial. He's um, a Gen Zer, um, which I think are cousins of millennials, in my opinion. Um, I I think that they have a lot of generational things that are different than when I grew up. Um, some good, um, some things that are opportunities for them to try to kind of grow. But I think that there is a lot of good in the the Gen Z and the millennial generations. So in terms of essentially, you know, doing internships and, and all of that, I don't think that that is, um, I don't think that that generation is per se not interested in in those opportunities. Um, me personally, at the time when I took it, I was a single mom, so I had no other choice. Um, and modeling wasn't enough to pay all of the bills. I think now um, the the generation around millennials and the Gen Z generation, whereas um, in our generation, we would do an internship for free because we want the experience. Um, I think this generation will do the internship, but they're not going to do it for free. They're also not going to take on an internship and just take and get coffee for you and, and run errands for you. If you're if they're going to do the internship, they're going to demand some really life experiences and some education and and really learn how to to own their craft. So I think that that's the difference between this generation. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of paid internships. A lot of them, they expect you to come in and work for free and then do just work that doesn't really relate to anything um, meaningful. So I think that that is the difference between these generations. Um, they're just looking for an opportunity to really grow. And that's why I think a lot of them come in and they say, hey, I want a job versus an internship because a lot of the internships aren't paid and don't really have any real value to put on their resume, which is that mindset. I kind of respect that about them. Yeah. I mean, depending on the age group, I'm I'm a millennial and I was the same way. Like I wanted to get a paid internship and, and a lot of these they come in and they can really do a lot of stuff that moves the needle in different areas of of the business so i i hear you there what so talk to me about the impact of if i recall correctly you got married pretty young you had your son pretty young and essentially pretty early in your career too you're you're a single mom how was that experience in terms of how it impacted your career where you had to do things like feed your son and, and like, how did you balance your own ambitions with being a good mom? And, and do you feel like there were benefits of, of that situation or were there some things you had to sort of work through challenges, some obvious, some not to, yeah. to sort of keep your career growing while also raising a, you know, a family? That's an interesting question. I, I never really thought about, thought about it because kind of when you're in the weeds, you just kind of do what you got to do to to kind of hustle. And New York is a tough city um, to kind of live and grow in and it's expensive. Um, so there were hard times and there were, you know, easier times for me. I think for me, the way that I balance and the, what I would say is that it takes a village. So I had a lot of support from my friends and my family. Um, I had a lot of mentors helping me along the way. 
um, when I worked at, worked at Swatch Group, um, I had a lot of senior executive leadership who believed in me and thought, hey, this girl is potential. And they looked out for me and trained me and put in the time to help me grow and help my career flourish. Um, and then in terms of just kind of have, being a single mom, I had, like I said, a village. I had great friends, family that would come in and support me. My parents would help out. Like I could send my kid home whenever I needed to. So I just had, for I was fortunate enough to have a lot of support. I think the key to juggling something like that, whether you're a single mom or single dad or um, just a young person trying to find your way in your career and you're not sure what you want to do, I think for me, it's just to try. Um I think you don't really know what you want or what you want to do or what you're made of until you actually um, do the grit and really try a thing. So a lot of who I am today is because I was very, very afraid, but I thought that not trying was more scary than trying. And so this is something I actually tell my son, who is now 23 years old, um, when you're afraid of things, you just have to go try it. Um, to get over that fear, because most of the time, what you'll find what you're afraid of, you'll just laugh at yourself. Why was I ever afraid of that? So, yeah, I think it's just for me, I, I really, really had to just go in and, and conquer the things that I thought were challenging and afraid of. And I still do that today. It's it's a really good point, because I find this podcast is a great example of something I've wanted to do for a long time, but just part, you know, part of it's being a little afraid and not really knowing what to do or how to do it. And, but I'm having so much fun and it's been so much fun to, to learn how to do it. I really like, and I've started to think about my career in the sense of like, you know, when it's over, what are the regrets I would have in, at my funeral and then sort of work backwards or what do I want people to say about me at my funeral? That's a really good point. I want to come back to you. You, you talked about how you still stay in contact with the North Carolina CEO, I believe, or, or executive at the customer service role. That's fascinating. Is that something that you consciously try to do at, at all your gigs that you've worked at? Or is, it just, is that just a one-off? And how do you feel about the value of networking? I, I mean, I think that allyship networking is critical to not only your career, but your mental health. And I think also you just being a more intelligent person, um, having different friendships and different people that you're not normally um, sit at your dinner table and have a conversation with, whether you have the same perspective or different perspective, I think it is critical for your well-being to have diverse people around you. Um, I was lucky enough that um, the people there really like me. Um, and so that's how I, I stay in touch. I try to stay connected with all of the executive leadership that I've worked with throughout the years and build really good relationships with them. Um, not just from a career perspective, but I just I love to take knowledge um, and I love to hear kind of their experiences and how it can relate to my own. Um, like a lot of us, you know, our parents do something completely different in their career than what we do. So if I have a question about something in tech or I have a question about 
something around um, my, if I wanted to get my MBA, I've been thinking about going back to school to get my MBA, um, but I don't know if it's a really a good value for money at this point in my career. Um, that's not a question or a conversation I can have with my parents, but it is something I could have with one of the CEOs that I've worked with. It is a conversation that I can have with colleagues and other people um, who I've worked with in the industry. So um, I think networking is not just important in terms from a career perspective, but for a personal growth perspective as well. Um, they say you are who you associate yourself with and who you surround yourself with. And so I think it's really important to grow your mental as well as your career in terms of your network and the people that you keep around you. I totally agree. Can you, what tactical advice would you give to someone who maybe doesn't network now or doesn't see the value in or doesn't really know what to do? Is there, is there a small step they could take to maybe start doing that without, you know, reaching out, you know, freaking someone out that they used to work with 10 (laughs) years ago. And then, and then maybe dovetail into how, in terms of how it's helped you in your career we can kind of go wherever you want, or, or even I thought it was interesting you said help your mental health. So just to summarize, like tactically, what could someone do to start getting better at this? And then how personally have you been a beneficiary of doing so? Sure. So I think when you think about um, mentoring and net- finding mentorships and networking and coaches, life coaches, um, you can't think about, um, what you need today. Like I'm going to go out today and I'm going to find me a mentorship. Um, These relationships are built over time. So what you really want to do is if you're currently working at a restaurant, you want to look for mentors for the career path that you're taking. So if you're looking for tech, you're interested in the tech field, you want to start reaching out to people in tech going to events where like-minded people are and building partnerships and relationships. So you're not necessarily networking for what you're doing right now. You're networking for what you want to do future because you know that to build really good relationships, it takes time. Um, and the ways of doing that, and I, and I struggle with this myself because sometimes when I feel like I want to connect with someone, um, I don't want to feel like I'm an ass kisser. And that is really there's a, a there's a really clever spot between that and really finding genuine relationships. And I always look for people who I think I can have a really genuine connection with. So that's the tricky part. But I think that if you really look at it from a, a lens of where you can see you can benefit each other um, is critical. And I say benefit each other because if you're looking for um, a, a networking opportunity and you're just looking for them to do something for you, it's not, it's never going to work. And I know you think, you know, some people think, well, what value can I bring to a CEO? Well, there's a lot of value you can bring for them. They, they don't know, you know, your unique perspective on things or something they may be tricky or something tricky that they're trying to juggle from a PR perspective. You, you just never know. Right. So I think that it's it has to be a mutual partnership for me, specifically how it's really benefited for me. It's it's opened the doors for career opportunities. There, there's been times where I haven't really even had to interview for a job. It was like, just bring her in. Or um, I was interviewing for a company and I've worked with someone and they knew you know, my work ethic and what I bring to the table. And it was like, no brainer, hire her. If you don't, you're stupid kind of thing. So 
for me, it, it, it's helped me in terms of my career. But again, I think where I found the most value is around um, the mental well-being and the, the growth from a personal experience that I got from networking. Um, my network is pretty dope. What I would have to say, having worked in tech, having worked in fashion and advertising, I have some really interesting, I have a really interesting network. I have a lot of friends who are entrepreneurs who have their own businesses and things of that nature. So I'm fortunate enough to get like really unique perspective across different things. And also being, you know, an African-American woman, um, it's also interesting for me. Um, my best friend is a guy and he's Greek. And it's, it's very interesting for me that when we bounce up, bounce ideas off of each other and I tell him something from the black experience and he would tell me what it's like from his experience. And I didn't consider that. And I'm like, ah, oh, aha, you know, if I'm having a really tough day at work and, you know, someone didn't get me or understand me and he puts into perspective, it always makes me feel better because now he's like, well, okay, did you consider this Jenny, you know, um, no, I didn't. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. When I go back and see um, that colleague tomorrow, I, I want to readdress our conversation and, and talk about it from a different lens. So I think it's really good in a network. And I think people don't take advantage of it from a mental and a personal growth opportunity as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, especially in these times when it could be worst case scenario, someone loses their job or what have you, your network is the first group of people you want to turn to. And if you're not actively harvesting that network, it creates an awkwardness, I think, of like, look, this person, you haven't reached out to this person or talked to them in three years, but now you might be able to use their help. So there's that superficiality of that the person's um, going to be able to feel when you reach out to them. But then also by having a dope network as you were talking about when something happens people are going to be willing to help you because they care about you you have an ongoing relationship with them and it's like you said sometimes you don't even have to interview it's like we know jenny's great at this this and this let's let's bring her in kind of thing just to add to what you said that's interesting point um because when you have a network especially like networks like linkedin and glassdoor indeed and you build this huge network and you haven't talked to people in a while and you see they work at a company that you want to put in a position. How do you do? What do you do? Right. Um, I, that is really, really tricky. Um, I try to refresh my memory in terms of how I work with this person and bring up something clever and funny or how we work together in the past to refresh, you know, the relationship. And if there isn't anything I bring in, I, I, I use kind of pool, you know, how you drop names. We have such and such in common. And, you know, I would really like to be considered for opportunity at your company, you know, because we have these two people in common, I'm surely, I'm sure they would give, come, give me a high recommendation and drop na and name drop. Right. Um, if I see we have. So that's kind of how I approach that. Um, what I also found, and, I, and this is just being real, realistic um, in the job market, specifically in, in today's COVID world, a lot of people will ignore your emails. 
I don't care if you were best friends with them and you work with them for years and you have a great relationship. Some people will just ignore you or not get back to you or say that they're going to put you up and you know that they didn't because you didn't get a call back or, or things of that nature. Um, so that's out there. What I would say about that is you just have to roll the dice. And what I do is I don't delete those people from my LinkedIn when I see that they ignore me. I keep it there. So working in operations and partnering with, you know, very high level executive leadership and HR and being in the seat where I hire people as well, I remember them. So if Susie ignored my email and then two years from now or a year from now, and I, I cannot tell you how many times this has happened to me, John, where I've, I've reached out to someone and said, hey, you know, there's an opportunity at your company, which you you know, shoot me an email. And then if you don't feel comfortable recommending me, can you just, you know, give me the name of the person there and they would just ghost me or whatever. And then six months later, a year later, I'm in a position where they're like, hey, you work in operations. We want to, I got some people that is, would be great for a role that you're hiring for. Um, I can't really consider you a partner to work with. Um, I've had experience with you in the past and yeah. it wasn't, you know what I mean? So I just think that, you have to be thoughtful about that kind of stuff because you never know how it could it burn you. But I think just gamble, shoot your shot. Yeah, well, I would say it re reiterates two things you said. One is, you know, you're never going to win if you don't try. So you have nothing to lose, essentially. And then two, yeah, it's the old adage. Like, you never know when this person's going to show up again in your life. So it's be nice to everyone, even the door doorman or woman or right. the CEO. You just never know when this person's going to, and you know, that's just essentially being a good person too. So this is great. We, we, we went down a rabbit hole, but getting back to your narrative here. So we were, we were at Swatch group. You got the, the, the job there permanently in sales and marketing for Calvin Klein. And then you move into advertising and, tech in that world you've had a number of gigs in your career so how where should we jump to next in terms of that transition what obviously you went to school for it so you sort of yeah. went down that rabbit hole but I don't yeah. know if you want to maybe talk about your transition into Yahoo yeah um yeah so I worked at Yahoo and then um during 2008 it was a really bad recession um, Yahoo had massive layoffs across all of their all of their companies. And of course, I got hit um, was one of the people that got um, laid off during that time. Um, and it was like pretty much my entire team. I think maybe only like five percent of my team was still working there after this. Um, and I did multiple rounds of layoffs or whatever. Um, so. What I was doing, um, and those people who are um, in the advertising world will know what this is, but I was an ad trafficker at Yahoo where I traffic the banners that you see um, online. So I learned all about the tech and the different types of gifts and what pairs well with this and how to track them and things of that nature. And so that created an opportunity for me to kind of transition into um, more tech savvy roles in terms of programmatic when programmatic was starting to be more and more sexy and um, created opportunities for me to work in um, advertising. 
And so I did that for most of my career, um, just an ad ops kind of gal, managed some really great guys and gals over the years who I still mentor and keep in touch with today. Um, and then essentially there was an opportunity at 360i and 360i is uh, part of the Dentsu family where I wanted to move out of the tech space. It was getting um, very complex. You had it. You had to continuously keep up the education. It was new partners and new vendors and new technology coming into the space every day. And me, it just wasn't as sexy anymore. It wasn't you know, we can track you with a one-by-one click tracker. It was now becoming much more complex. So there was an opportunity for me to move into an operations role um, and work directly for the CFO at the company. So I did that and I loved it. I felt like um, I had found my way home. It was like great. My boss at the time um, was amazing. I really enjoyed working with him. Um, and uh, it, it just felt like I was supposed to be where I be. I was helping keep the health of the business um, healthy. I was helping um, read legal contracts and negotiate our rates. I was making sure our resourcing across all of our teams were good. I helped with a lot of the diversity and inclusion initiatives around pay equity and things of that nature. And that's kind of what I've been doing um, for most of my career now. And it is, and I really enjoy it, um, I must say. Um, it has been a challenge for me, though, because um, as a woman of color, making sure that I'm not stagnant and continuously progression in my career is always a challenge um, because there's not a lot of opportunities for women of color to progress in their career or women in general, because there's just not a lot of seats for us at the table. So you kind of got to push and knock the doors down and create those opportunities for yourself. But I think I found my sweet spot um, doing operations. So I did a little bit of something similar at the New York Times and working for WPP um, and then at Essence as well. So it's just kind of been something that kind of fell into my lap that I really enjoy doing and something that I think that I do really well. Got it. Got it. Couple questions on that. You, you talked about, you said your boss, the CFO at 360i was great. What what made him a great boss? Um, well, I think what made him a great boss was that he he was a he was great to me. So um, and he was as transparent as he could be. Um, and I think that I really valued that transparency. So if we had a budget and I needed money to do something or move something around. Um, he wouldn't give me, and if he couldn't divulge the reason why he couldn't give me what I wanted, um, he would just let me know, it's not that I don't want to give it to you, it's not within my means, and there's other things. You know, like he would position it with being as transparent as he could. Um, he was also a great mentor and really, um, really direct with me. And I think that a lot of times um, some bosses, they kind of sugarcoat and say, 
you know, dance around what they really want to say. And he wasn't that way at all. He was he was really direct with me and gave me the information that I needed to hear, but also applauded me and, and really gave me great reviews and great feedback when I needed to hear that as well. So he was just really, really great in those terms and in, in that way of just um, giving the constructive criticism and also giving the valuable mentorship at the same time. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned in at least one of the stops, and I, I think you've done this in more than one place, you've managed people directly. What what do you enjoy about leadership if you do? And maybe what's one thing you've learned managing people that you didn't know before? I think leadership is so hard. Um, I think it's at any company for me, it's always the most challenging part of my job because I feel like um, I hold you know, folks' careers in my hands and they want to do the best work they can. And I want to create an opportunity for them to do their best work. And I don't want to be that stereotypical boss where, you know, just giving orders or things of that nature. So I try to make the space in my team a much more collaborative space um, that they can give the feedback. But at the same time, I also need to say at the end of the day, it I have to live with the decisions that we make. So it is my choice to make the final decision. But I do want folks to feel who work under me to feel as if, you know, their perspective is being heard. I care about it. I value what they bring to the table. Um, So that's really important. I think for me, um, the leadership part is building that respect with the people that you manage over time and, making sure that they know that you have their back 100%. Sometimes as a manager, there are things beyond your control that you can't discuss with the people that you manage um, because it's confidential or it's just unethical, whatever the case may be. Um, And if you could and you could give them full picture, they would say, ah, okay. But Mm -hmm. because you can't, you have to just kind of um, coin the conversation um, to, to help them understand how you're navigating the role or whatever, what they're looking for that's working in their best interest. And just navigating politics for your team is also just like a huge thing, um, especially in the advertising industry. Um, there's, there's so many politics that you have to kind of navigate through. So, um, yeah, being a, a leader is a really tough job and I work on it every day. I think that I'm really good at it because I would say most of the people that I've managed still reach out to me when I have a drink with me, um, ask me for career advice, um, are my friends on social media, not just LinkedIn, but across all of the social media channels. So I think that I, I did a good job there, but I think that there's always an opportunity to advance and, and really grow your, your leadership skills. Yeah, it's it's never something I think you just check a box and say, I'm good, I'm good here. Right. Move on to the next thing. Right, right. So, so I want to tie a couple things together. One, what you talked about how technology was sexy and then it wasn't sexy. And then you you also said how it's important not to be stagnant and keep growing in your career. And then I've, I've noticed in your career trajectory, some places you were there less than a year, some places you were there for three years. I kind of want to bring those three things together and, and, and get your reaction. How do you think about when is the right time to move on? 
Or, you know, do you get into a situation? And obviously, as you talked about, there's layoffs and things like that that can contribute to these things. But how do you think about I'm in this situation? It's a mess. I'm going to pull the ripcord and get out versus staying somewhere for three years. What does that all mean to you? So for me, um, my mental health is really important to me. I have to enjoy the people that I work with and the company that I work with. And sometimes you can enjoy all of that but a company isn't making the most healthy decisions for that company to have longevity. And so, you know, because they're not making the best decisions for the company, you probably need to create some opportunity and look at um, other career opportunities. For me, I'm always looking for work, whether I'm in a job or not, because you just never know what the best, the next best thing is. Um, And you just never know what a company, um, what, is great today. Is it going to be great tomorrow? Especially, you know, for um, people of color and other marginalized groups, um, the political landscape of a lot of companies are sometimes a, a bit challenging to navigate. So for me, um, I know when I need to leave based on what I think the health of a business is doing, and um, if I like the work and the people that I'm working with. Um, I take a salary cut, a big salary cut to work somewhere where I really love the people versus working somewhere where I'm making a lot of money and I don't like what I'm doing and I don't like the people that I'm surrounding myself with. So that's really, really important to me. And also, it's really important to know that the company that you're working with is going to have some longevity and some upward mobility for your career. So I've left companies early on when I saw very quickly that there was no opportunity for career advancement for me, because like I said earlier on in our conversation for women of color, it's harder for us to get promoted. And so I can't waste my time somewhere where um, I'm going to be sitting in the same role for four or five years, getting excellent performance reviews and not getting promoted. Um, so I will move quickly if I see that there's not an opportunity for me to grow somewhere. Got it. So could you give us an example of a situation? You don't have to name the company, but feel free. Right. To where you were in that situation where either the business health didn't look good you weren't, you you didn't feel like you were being valued. Like what was that situation? Um, How did you get, like, what was your approach to get out of it? Sure. Um, So I've worked at a smaller um, ad agency in my career. And in fact, it was probably one of the greatest experiences I have. Um, The CFO at this company was amazing. Um, He really took, really took good care of me. And this is a different CFO than um, 360i. Um, but, um, I was only there for under a year simply because, um, it wasn't clear on the direction that they wanted to go into. Um, and it wasn't really clear of the health of the business. So there was a lot of choices being made around new clients and new businesses that didn't sit well with me. Um, a lot of really, um, not being thoughtful about the contracts and the language in the contracts that they were they were working with clients, being kind of preemptive in making decisions with clients and not doing the due diligence to make sure that if something falls through, you know, your business is still going to be healthy. Um, but most importantly, um, I had got hired in 
to lead um, the operations um, specialty at this company. And when I got there, they had me um, wanting to do ad operations and media planning. Um, and so what I was hired to do was something very different than what they brought me on to do. And it's not because, um, you know, they were trying to trick me or anything. It was just that that's what they needed at the time. And my background was in ad ops and media tech. So I could speak to and manage a lot of those different things. But um, if I wanted to do that, I would have took a job doing that. So it was a collective of a lot of different things. And sometimes you get that working with smaller ad agencies. You you know, you have to wear many hats and, and, it, and it's totally fine. Um, it's just not something that I wanted to do at that time in my career, because, again, my career tra- trajectory was in operations mm-hmm. and um, not ad op. So um, that's kind of the niche of it and how that fell upon me to make the decision to um, find other opportunities. Yeah, I, that's really interesting. And part of this, I mean, it's got to be really cool to work for a CFO because like you were saying, you wear many hats. I mean, your 360i description you're all over the place, but actually to pay attention to the health of the business. Cause I think it's easy for people to be like, this is my role. This is what I do every day. This is my team and sort of not pay attention to the bigger picture. So I think that's, that's really good advice. I want to circle back to something that you've brought up several times, which is diversity and inclusion. I think it's hit my radar in the last year that that now includes diversity, equity, and inclusion. I would say the first eight years of working in the tech industry, which is probably more, it's more of a, it's got work to do. And I, I'd, I'd love to get your, your thoughts on how we can keep moving the needle there. But right. Maybe not so much in like a manufacturing industry, for example, <laughs> but, right. you know, and you've probably been thinking about this longer than I have, but where, where do you think we are? And I, I guess for me, what, why was equity added into that? I mean, I think I understand why it was added, but I just love to kind of hear your experiences personally, where, where maybe because you are an African-American woman and you haven't had opportunities and sort of what that looked like and, you know, how you handled it. Because I guess, and one thing I want to get to is like, there's obvious people who are not good people where they might, be chauvinist or racist or whatever. But I also think a lot of this is there's a subconscious component or unconscious bias. So I'd just love to kind of hear, hear where we are right now and, and where you'd like to see this thing go and, and how you're contributing to it, as you mentioned. So I read an article today that the chief diversity and inclusion job title and role brings very little value to most companies. Um, And I thought that that was a really, really interesting, and the point of view um, of the writer, um, I think the writer decided to be anonymous, um, but I think that the point of view that the writer had um, was spot on on a lot of different cases. I've I've seen diversity and inclusion done really, really well. And I've seen it done as lip services and chief diversity and inclusion roles as just lip service to make a company appear as if they care about um, diversity and inclusion. 
Um, so I don't think that the, the role of self is um, a waste, but I do think it's a waste if you don't have the right leadership and you're setting that person up to fail. If you don't have leadership truly dedicated and supported to see the initiatives around diversity, inclusion and equity um, as reliable. So where do I see it and what do I think about it now? I think that um, it's been a big deal forever, but of course the things surrounding George Floyd and the protests has made it kind of top of mind for a lot of companies from a PR perspective. Um, but also it's also made people more thoughtful and have empathy for their um people of color that work for them to understand kind of the challenges because now they're openly and giving honest, having honest conversations around these things. Um, and I think that that's really, really important. I think that we have a long way to go. I don't think that hiring a chief diversity and inclusion officer or director or VP is the answer unless your executive leadership is truly committed into making some meaningful change and impact across the business. Otherwise, this person will come in blue-eyed and ready to go and really, really wanting and eager to make a impact and essentially see that no one really cares. No one is really listening. They don't have the budgets to make an impact. They don't have anyone buying into they're great ideas, even though the data supports it and the metrics show that, you know, your businesses will do well if you, you find a way to retain diverse and, and attract diverse talent. Um, so I think it is a, a village. Again, it goes back to it takes a village, not just on the chief diversity inclusion officer. Um, I do like the idea that they're starting to separate church and state. Um, essentially, in the past, diversity and inclusion roles would fall under the operations team or it would fall specifically in HR. But now corporations are seeing that we need to hold executive leadership accountable. So this role needs to report into the CC. It needs to report into the board of directors. There needs to be some um, transparency around what those numbers are that you report out to um, people, your consumers, and um, what the market says that you're doing around all of these initiatives. So I think that that's a really great win, but I do think that we have a long way to go to differentiate companies who really care about it and the companies who are just spouting their service. Yeah, thank you for sharing that perspective. I agree. I, I've seen it where I agree with you too. I like the fact that if, if they're not reporting to a senior business leader, it can sort of get not prioritized in the way that it should be. And I, the thing that lures me in on the whole conversation outside of a lot of what you've said is in my early days of management, I just realized very early that if I have to come up with all the good ideas that we're going to be in big trouble sooner than later. And so putting people around me who think differently, who have different experiences, which typically means they're going to look different. If you do that and you sort of scale from a team of like four to 25 with that spirit in mind of like, 
we're solving hard business problems. So I want to get the right solution, which is probably not going to come from me, but some other smart, talented person. And you kind of back out and, and people start to look different. And, and one of the things I'm hoping, and, and I don't know if, so one, is that sort of a good way to think about it? And two, I, I'm really excited to hear more about where this is going to go with from the inclusivity piece, because that can mean a lot of different things. And I think it's, you were talking about it with your best friend, right? It was like, hey, this is my perspective on it. But when you heard his perspective on it, it was like, oh, wow, let me go back to that person. And that to me is really what inclusivity is about, is putting yourself in another person's shoes, seeking to understand. Doesn't necessarily mean you have to agree, but what's your reaction to that? So you asked about, you know, what is diversity, what is inclusion and what is equity? So the way I view it and the way I see it is diversity is essentially having um, a very diverse workplace, which is what we know to be what our country looks like or what countries in general um, appear to be or want to be. Um, And then the inclusion is, okay. so now that you have all of these people, do they feel included? Can they come into the boardroom and have a conversation and be able to sit at the table and you seriously consider what they're saying? And then the equity part about it is, is it fair? Is the policies and the things that you have in place benefiting them so that they can have somewhat of some mobile upwardability and and progress within your organization? So to have one of these things and not the other is doing an injustice to what diversity, inclusion, and equity is. They all three are very critical and in their own um, unique way have an importance to your business and an importance for you to put some effort and some finance behind it to support these, these things. And again, the narratives and who you're speaking to, diversity, um, inclusion, and equity could be very different um, because working, I've in most of my career, I've worked in roles that are very global. So what you see in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion in North America is very different than EMEA, is very different than APAC, because what you see in APAC is not necessarily around um, race relations. It's more around sex um, and um, things of that nature. So it really is contingent around what impacts you in your business and in your region. So it's really important to look at these things, not from a silo lens, but look at it considering all perspective, because diversity and inclusion and equity does not just um, impact marginalized communities. It, it impacts everyone. Yeah, I really like that framework that you put on it. And I was reading last week about Starbucks. I don't know if you saw this, but they're starting to... I don't want to misquote it, but essentially tie revenue targets and bonuses to diversity and inclusion and having a certain percentage of people in a role. It was, it was a pretty, when, when I read it, it was, it was like, Oh, they're really trying to take it to the next level. Like I haven't heard a lot about that. I don't know if you saw that. I I saw that. And that's exactly what we need to do. Um, I know that a lot and a lot of executive leadership don't want to do that because 
when you do that, you're, you're, you're really truly committed to diversity and inclusion because you want to hit your numbers so that you can continue to make the money that you make for yourself. So to make that risk out there is it's a big deal. And I applaud them. Yeah, I saw that. It, they're going to get so much great PR around it because this is something that, you know, diversity and inclusion leaders have been shouting from the top of their lungs for many, many, many years. If you really want to see progress in this space, you need to hold the people who make the decisions accountable um, for real progression. Um, and that's the best way to do it. So, yeah, I think it's a bold step. I think it is really, really great. But, you know, to be fair to some companies, they're I, I want to say there is probably hesitation around it because of all of the investors and what does that mean for their business and their leadership. So there's a lot of considerations that they have to take and think through. But if they're really committed to diversity and inclusion, um, this is such an excellent way to start. Yeah. And again, tying it, making it almost a win-win, right? A win right. for the people and a, and ultimately went for the business and sort of those studies that you've no doubt read, I think are really powerful, compelling cases. Conflict is is common at, at work and sort of along this lines of inclusivity and sort of working with different types of people. How have, has conflict ever come up in your career with different people? And and if so, how do you, how do you handle it? And what kind of advice would you have for, for people who maybe are working with a difficult colleague at work? I mean, I I think early on in my career when um, politics and corporate conflict a- approached me, I wasn't prepared. I, I, I didn't see it coming. Um, I didn't, I, I think that I was naive to it. Um, but having worked in the industry for over 15 years now, um, I am what we call, I keep receipts. Um, And I think that for me, um, it's critical um, because you have a lot of people, unfortunately, who work in managerial or leadership positions who essentially have egos and godlike tendencies at their um, at the companies they work for. However, the work that they put forth is mediocre. And um, you wonder, how the hell did they get this job? And how the hell are they able to keep this job? Like, who hasn't worked with someone that they felt that way about? Um, And so for me, you know, I, from an operations perspective, when I see this type of things, unfortunately, I'm one of the people that have to call it out and do something about it. Because operations, we care about the health of the business. Mm-hmm. So if you have something that is not that's impacting the health of the business or someone's work or something like that, that's something that I have to fix. Right. And so um, how I address conflict and opportunity is really looking at the person that I'm talking to um, to understand how a resolution would benefit them. And it's and, and it's just the way of the world. Um, I had a training once um, that around working with different personalities, and it said, you never treat people how you want to be treated. You treat people how they want to be treated. So the arrogance of you to think that you know how everyone wants to be treated, like right. you, right? 
Um, and so I think for me, dealing with conflict or dealing with difficult situations, I try to look at, put myself in the other person's shoes, right? Um, I've had people that I thought were, didn't do their job really well, or I had people who um, I thought were in positions where they may have been a little bit biased and we needed to address some of those concerns. But I had to look at it from a lens of what they're going through and the challenges that they're going through and the person who they report into, because some of that may be um, reason to why there is a transition and then figure out how to you know, really partner with this person. And I think that if you look at it from that lens, that's where you get some meaningful results. So John, let's say, you know, you get on my nerves and um, you don't agree with anything that I say and everything that I bring to the table. But if I do my research and I have a meaningful conversation with you and I find out why you disagree with everything that I say, I find out that you need a quick win. Find out that you can't agree with me because agreeing with me gives me another win and you need a win in front of your boss because maybe you had a performance review that says that you're not bringing new ideas to the table. If I have that information, now I'm in a position to talk to you that we both can win. I can give you your win and I can still get the initiative or the program that I need to get in front of people um, and get buy-in from it, we can partner together now that I have this information. So I think it's really strategic and thoughtful to really know your audience and who you're talking to in order to have the conversations you need to find real progression. I really like that. Thank you for sharing. Jenny, I've just got a few more more questions as, as we want to go. This has been really, really fascinating. You, you talked about you might want to get your MBA. I'd love to hear your thought process around that because there might be other people at this point in their career. Maybe they've been in the workforce for a while and want to go back to school. What, what, what's the, what's the why and how are you thinking about doing it if you do? Right. I, um, I've been struggling with this because college debt is a real thing. Um, and MBAs are not cheap. They're expensive. Um, and they're a, they're a huge time crunch um, because I, you know, have other ambitions that I want to work on for myself. Um, and it's really kind of made me think about what I want to do in terms of my career. However, what I find is a lot of as I move from a senior director into a VP and chief role, and I've been interviewing for a lot of um, chief diversity and inclusion officer roles and things of that nature, I'm finding that companies want the MBA. And they want the MBA because when they do your bio, they want to be able to say it. They want the experiences that you learn from an MBA program because that's fresh, new perspective. Um, and so they want all of that impact. So I understand and I want to be able to give that. But at the same time, um, I'm really kind of thoughtful about the pros and cons of doing it, meaning the financial, the time. And is this something I see myself doing for the next 10 years that it will pay off getting the MBA? Um, so I haven't really decided. I think what I am going to do is, of course, 2020 has just been a complete 
eye awakening experience for so many people. Mm -hmm. So I think that this year I'm using this time to really decide this year what I want to do next in terms of my personal growth and my career growth. And then I'll make the decision of what I want to do in 2021. But there's other things this year that I want to do. Um, but I think for me, going back to um, my networking and my community and my mentorship programs, um, I've been talking to a lot of people in the industry who are either doing the job that I want to do or the job that um, I think that I would love and I'm getting their stance on it. And a lot of them, um, while they have an MBA, it isn't really impacting what they do other than the optics on their bio. Um, and I think I found that to be really, really interesting. However, they're saying that they wouldn't have gotten the opportunity without it. So it's a really, it's a really interesting kind of idea. Um, and I, I haven't really, I, I really haven't made up my mind about if it's good or bad. Um, I think I'm still in, um, in the gray area there. I find it to be a frustrating chicken and an egg because you're not talking about a even $10,000 investment, right? A, a MBA at Columbia is $200,000. That was the last time I checked. So it's, it is a little frustrating to me because it's essentially a glorified checkbox. Now, it, it, again, to your point, it depends on what you want to do. Because I know a lot of people who have gotten it and they're better off in their work for it. But I also know people like you you mentioned where they've got it, doesn't really move the needle. So good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> but but you, you, you told me this before when we were catching up before about how you would sort of inter along the lines of you, you talking about the VP and then chief role. Because you, you, do you mind sharing that story where you had interviewed sure. at a level and then... It didn't work out, but you you walked away with a clear takeaway. And, and then I, I, I yeah. think that was interesting of how you're approaching it moving forward. So I interviewed for a really amazing job. It was I, I thought was my job. It was meant for me. It was um, a chief diversity and inclusion officer with an operations arm to the role. Um, it was a global role for a very large company, and it allowed me to work in the fashion industry um, and and the tech industry at the same time. Wow, my blown, right? Who gets to do tech and fashion at the same time? Um, so it was just an incredible opportunity. Um, I did not want to interview for the job. I did not think that I was ready in my career to do it. I'm only at a VP level. Am I ready for a chief role? And I reached out to a lot of executive leadership in my network and I said, what do you think about this? And they were like, Jenny, I'm surprised you're not doing a chief role already. I'm surprised you're not running your own business. Like, and they really made me feel like, what are they seeing in me that I'm not seeing in myself? So I went for the role, two months, maybe a little over two months interview process. I made it through interviewing five or six people. I made it all the way up to the CFO who loved me, I believe. Um, I did not get the job. But when I found out that I why I didn't get the job, it was simply because their executive office is in London and they were looking for somebody 
who actually lived in London mm-hmm. versus New York. And they didn't realize that that's what they really wanted until like the progress, the, you know, the process kind of went along because they were interviewing with the COVID. They thought that this role could sit anywhere. But over time, they realized after interviewing a few people that they really wanted the role to sit in London, which I think is completely fair. But I didn't get the job because I wasn't qualified or they didn't think I was ready. I didn't get the job because I didn't live in London. So that was a huge awakening moment for me that really made me feel like you really need to believe in self, believe in yourself and really know the value and what you can bring to the table. And um, I've done, you know, panels and I've gotten, you know, articles written about me and I've done podcasts and things of that nature. And I never promoted any of that because I didn't think that that was relevant to the work that I do now. But with the world of social media, owning your own business, getting written in the trades, any of that writing, you know, doing panels, all of that stuff is relevant today that only helps and boost your career. So that's definitely um, moving forward in 2021. I'm definitely going to start to really promote myself as if I would my own brand, my own business. So that's definitely something I'm going to look into um, because I think that that has a lot of impact on some of the positions that I've been interviewing for as well. But it was so refreshing to see that, you know, People like, um, you know, the head of WPP, who, uh, head of culture at WPP tells me, look, um, Jenny, what are you talking about? Of course, you would be great for this. Why, why are you not con- considering yourself for this? Let's put you forward for this. So I think that that was really, really refreshing for me. I love that you didn't get the result you wanted, but it actually was a huge confidence booster in, in moving forward. And then again going back to your network and how sometimes those people can see things in ourselves that we can't see. So thank you for sharing that. So we, Jenny, we've covered a lot of ground in this conversation. I I can't wait to get it out there, but my, what's the one thing you would want someone to take away from your career and experiences, whether they're 25 or 55 and and really think about applying to their own career? I think that, I I think that there's two things. I think that um, we talked about trying new things. I think that you really have to go out and try new things. You don't know what you're going to love and what, you know, pulls your passion strings until you try a bunch of things. So you could start off like me doing ad trafficking and ad ops and, think that you love it and then you get a taste of trying something new and you find out you really love something a lot more. And I also think that really thinking about resilience, um, because in our lives, our personal lives, in our career, we fall down a lot. And it's really, and it's such a, you know, common thing that people say, it's not about how you fall, it's about how you get up, but it's so true. Um, um, you have to be able to, you know, motivate yourself, pick yourself up, believe in yourself and continuously be the person that you know you are in your career and in your personal life. So just go out and, you know, try a bunch of things, make a bunch of mistakes and get up and just do it better the next time and be a learner, be curious, be um, thoughtful and have empathy for others. Um, and I think that if you do all of those things, there's 
you're, you're going to win at life. That's a great note to end on. Jenny, if, if anyone's interested in reaching out to you and learning more or wanted to reach out to you and ask you about anything you've discussed today, where, where can they find you on the internet? So um, they can find me at Jenny Italy Consis on LinkedIn. That's J-E-N-N-Y dot L-I-K-A-N-S-I-S. Or you can find me on Instagram and all of the other social media platforms out there. Um, happy to answer any questions or just be someone if you need someone to talk to, if you have questions about anything, definitely reach out to me. I'm one of those people that definitely will not ghost you. So, yeah, looking forward to um, hearing more about the career corner and seeing how amazing this is going to kind of continue to grow and develop, John. Yeah, thank you. And I'll I'll link to all that in the in the show notes for, for the listener. Jenny Laconsis, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for being a great friend to me and my wife and and say hi to the hubby for yeah. me. Thank the you. Pleasure is, the pleasure is all mine. Enjoy the rest of your day, John. You too. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jenny Leconsis. Thank you so much for listening. If you found it valuable, please share it with your friends and family, colleagues. I'd love to hear your feedback and you can find me on Twitter at Jonathan Mars. Thank you again and have a great day.